So it's, it's as if the people have already decided what the most beautiful music must, is uh, without giving allowance for the future. What helps me get up in the morning is to believe that the most beautiful music is still yet to be, to be made. Probably not by me, but that, that there's still hope, that the, it's still open, that there's still space for us to, for us living today to keep doing what we do rather than be, be temple worshippers for something that's already happened. There are over 31 billion seconds in a year. How many of those precious seconds do you spend listening to music, binging the latest series, reading poetry, consuming art and media on a broader scale? In this series, I, Stefano Flavoni, am joined by the top artists of our time to discuss the method of our madness. As Miles Davis once said, don't play what's there, play what's not. is music? What is noise? What even is an instrument? Where do creative impulses originate? In this episode, I sat down with Ken Ueno, one of the most daring living composers and performers, to talk about his compositional process and performance journey. Ken uses what he refers to as a bespoke vocal practice, incorporating a wide swath of extended technique including elements of throat singing and vocal multiphonics. His work frequently walks a tightrope between music and performance art, and always has this invigorating underpinning of a freedom-asserting rebellion against the normative structures of our society. His compositions often feature the unique talents and abilities of specific performers, thus creating works that, in all likelihood, will only ever be performable by that single individual. in a demonstration for UC Berkeley, where he's a professor of composition. Ken ended it by saying, in my class, I push my students to test the limits of their comfort zones to broaden their creative capacities. The provocation is this, wouldn't you want to live in a world where even this is possible?
So how have you been? How's quarantine been treating you? Well, you know, just hanging in there and dealing with the uh, malaise, as you say. It's a phenomenological mind trip. Absolutely. Right? It's isolating in a, in a different way than most of us are used to. Yeah, I was thinking, though, maybe for writers and composers, our lives, our everyday life isn't as different as many other people. We're so used to spending so much time alone in our studios anyway. But, yeah, yeah it does it's kind of overall flatten time, and it still feels like, you know, the, the, the spring semester and the fall semester felt like one big thing because there was no difference from the the summer yeah yeah and uh it feels like it's still kind of lingering on this this kind of purgatory exactly yeah. the zoom purgatory that's it's it's stifling in the performance side of it and i'm, I'm curious what how you're feeling because you know so much of your life is the performance yes. what how, what's keeping you inspired on that front? Because, you know, vaccines started rolling out, but it probably won't hit us uh, for a couple months at least. Yeah. Um, everything's been, had been canceled. So it's yeah, dealing exactly. with a lot more um, admin and rescheduling, planning, a lot more admin and logistics. And, uh, yeah, trying to plan for things uh well uh pivoting to the future how's the pedagogy changed over online hmm. um it's hard to get a a read on uh, well the attention span is different right mm -hmm. and uh kind of um i i'm used to directing my attention to the different students and uh, if they're kind of falling asleep, I put my, I, I fix my gaze on them, and I can kind of attenuate people's, <laughs> you know, alertness in different ways, uh, you know, su subtle ways like that, subtle ways like that, uh, and uh, it, everything's kind of flattened, you know, in Zoom. Yeah. So that's that's hard. Sometimes people turn their uh, cameras off and. That's the That's, worst. I have no idea if they're getting it, if they're there, if they're, you yeah. know, <laughs> out to lunch. Exactly. That's hard. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's, uh, I, I've given a number of, you know, lectures on my work, and uh, I'm used to visiting different schools and giving, say, like a composition colloquium, and in it, in those, uh, okay, at those occasions, I typically like to play a whole piece through mm -hmm. and uh that's harder through zoom yeah yeah it, it's 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 flatter less less exciting um even playing a recording and sitting there together you know it's it's a different feeling than kind of like listening to a recording over zoom together so i've i've had to redesign my my lectures kind of yeah, yeah front load uh, the lectures uh, and send like links ahead of time and just trust that people listen to everything before then they can kind of point to it and 
So it's just more more talking and more Q and A, more space for Q and A. Uh, yeah. yeah, without. I'm in the same boat. Yeah, so I feel you. Yeah. How? how what's? Yeah. How, tell me about your experience. Well, conducting lessons are all online, mm -hmm. so it's a lot of theory, lots of score reading, less the praxis. So you basically get an opportunity to uh, focus on all the ancillary skills, mm -hmm. uh, but not the thing in itself, which I think is the summation of this entire quarantine, right? Yeah. We're, we're getting the, sure, the, the substance, but not the essence. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I first want to thank you for taking time out of your morning. I know you are super busy. I wanted to ask you, first off, uh, we're in 2020. It's the 60th anniversary of Lamont Young's compositions 1960 premiered at, at UC Berkeley on the Noon Concert Series. In performance art, you've really impacted a lot of people, myself included. I wanted to talk about a piece of writing you sent me, and I have a quote pulled up. Huh. So, within this milieu was a student who espoused a different mission. He said he was sick of blonde-haired white composers who didn't understand Chinese culture writing for Chinese instruments. Oh. His work, he said, would right this wrong and demonstrate how to correctly compose for Chinese instruments. So, your entire time in Hong Kong and all of your global residencies, you speak a lot about this sense of liberation, and I think that's reflected in your sound. I wanted to know if you could speak a bit to maybe 2020 as this political nightmare, the issues continuing in Hong Kong, and also just the sense of sound as liberation. Well, in that article, um, the article where I was um, talking about my experience living and working in Hong Kong as a visiting professor at a university there for a whole year. Uh, that was two years ago. And um, Hong Kong's music scene is, uh, I might say, is kind of bifurcated. There's a classical scene with the orchestra and some ensembles, not many. And... Um, well, uh, a smattering of chamber music and some underground experimental improvisation noise, DJs, that space. Um, but uh, the the student I was talking about um, was at a conservatory there, and there was a group of him and his friends who were kind of interested in what they called postmodernism. Um, it was ostensibly just kind of basing their pieces off of famous quotes from the Western classical repertoire, which might be a kind of, shall we, uh, um, I don't want to say mainstream, but there was, there was a number of students who were fascinated by that, and they, that was their practice. And that felt uh, aligned with the larger cultural condition of Hong Kong that uh, um, from a lot of the there's a lot of money there and a lot of the prestige cultural elements 
seem to really look to the West. And in fact, one of the cultural leaders there, I remember in a conversation she told me she was kind of nostalgic for the quote unquote golden era of colonialism, the British, under the British. And then, hmm. yeah, she's, uh, you know, she grew up in the 70s and 80s, and that's when Hong Kong was especially relatively much more affluent to China, to other parts of Southeast Asia. And, um, and she said, uh, well, we never thought of Hong Kong as, as part of Asia. We're, we've, we look to London, Paris, and New York as our peers. And that, that seemed really kind of strange to me. That, um, and somehow um, the university I was working City, University of Hong Kong, there's um, a, a really bougie mall called Festival Walk that you, you pass through from the subway station to climb up the hill to get to. I think I've been there, actually. Yeah, yeah. And there's an ice skating rink there. And it's, it's, Hong Kong is actually in the tropics. And, and I, I would watch it's the, the kids learning to ice skate there. And I was thinking, I'm like, you know, it's so weird that this is this imposition of one climate condition onto Hong Kong's climate condition. And, and then it struck me that it was there for the same reason that the, the, some of the stores were there. Well, a lot of the stores are the same stores you find in Rodeo Drive or you know, many bougie places. Uh, in the States too, the, you know, the Chanel bags and the Gucci stuff. And um, so then I thought, well, superimposing one's, another's cultural condition is the ice skating ring. It's, it's there for the same reason the Chanel bags are there. You know, this is, this, it's, it's a part of neocolonialism. And, um, a lot of the, the music in Asia, the classical training, is still, that still plays a big part of it. And um, I, I was thinking, well, at what point, you know, how like Asian economies have been doing, you know, quite well and it's been growing, but at what point will, 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 the rest of the world, Asia and, and the other emergent economies, Africa and South America. At what point, if we really want a, a, a diverse, equitable place, then the prestige, items that, that broadcast prestige value or cultural things too, should also be uh, an equal exchange, right? Um, and, and so I, I felt when the, the students were telling me about they wanted to quote Wagner, that 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 cultural prestige value of the West was also present in their their education and their artistic impetus, and they were kind of blind to the fact that they were uh, neo neo colonized, you know. And and whereas I think in the underground scene. 
the you know, people hack instruments, make their own electronic instruments. A lot of these things, sound artists, the history of sound art is more, um, to borrow a, a phrase, a friend of mine, she's an ethnomusicologist um, working in England, Sure E. Tan says, uh, sound art is more a-cultural, doesn't have as much uh, history, so that um, non-Western uh, artists can participate a little bit more on equal footing. And that's what I saw in the underground um, music scene in Hong Kong as being a, more of a hopeful scene. You know, I saw one of the most beautiful sculptures uh, while, while observing the protests in Hong Kong. There was one night where the student protesters, and the students out there in the front lines are high school kids. They took the, the police metal barricades and then they, they repurposed it uh, to, to enclose the police station. To, hmm. yeah, to, to an, an object that was meant to enclose and entrap them, they repurposed to, to surround and enclose the police station and entrap them inside. And this assemblage um, also looked beautiful, you know. And then I thought, well, that spirit of creativity there was, there was, a, a, a doing for the sake of doing that felt like something different than the Chanel bags and the ice skating rink, you know, something really Definitely. intrinsic and necessary. Yeah. Uh, and a, a creative expression that was authentic. And it ties in with the history of Wan Chai, right? Because like Li Dong was what a printing sh street right it's with the wedding card street so now it's exactly as you described filled with all of these high scale upscale shops luxury designers western brands it's it's extremely powerful because i had a sort of parallel experience living mm. in shanghai right out of undergrad mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where there was also that sense of i was there because i was a white face mm -hmm. And there was a different sort of uh, mm. respect intrinsic to uh, the white Westerner as opposed to uh, someone who's ethnically Chinese leading an ensemble. So it was, I, I felt extremely uncomfortable at mm -hmm. basically the, 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 the colonial implication of my presence there at all. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting environment um you mentioned an ethnomusicologist and i actually have a question for you yes um you come from a japanese family yes you've floated around the globe especially growing up but within the field of study of japanese music until the past i would say two decades mm -hmm. historically it's been white people studying Japanese music and being the quote-unquote specialists in it um, and I, I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on this sort of Rudyard Kipling colonial cloth that 
ethnomusicology is sort of cut with. Well, in, in Japan, the study of Japanese music is not ethnomusicology. It's just the study of Japanese music. And exactly, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah, what seems strange to me is ethnomusicology is not just the study of diverse musical cultures, but in practice, the field also has traditionally privileged Western scholars and their philosophical frames and musical values to contextualize the other. And um, I've seen this in uh, there, this, this, that context has traditionally created um, hmm, um, some tension with the, the object of, of observation. Uh, say, for example, looking at transcriptions, quote unquote transcriptions, notational attempts at, at mm -hmm. uh, gagaku, you know, transcribing gagaku music, the, the, the traditional court music of Japan that's been around for a millennia, and putting it into Western notation, as some ethnomusicologists have done in the early part of the 20th century. Um, they assume that it's in a meter, if you're going to notate it in Western five-line stuff, right? And the notes also look like they're equal-tempered notes. The mouth mm. organ, the harmony floats above the melody in gagaku music. Um, and it's the, the show, the mouth organ, is tuned in Pythagorean tuning. So it's also the orchestra. The gagaku orchestra represents a counterpoint of tuning systems, actually. Interesting. So in both the frequency dimension and also the rhythmic dimension, it, it, it kind of what I call corsets the, the reality into these frames that are taken for granted. Right? And, uh, well, I, 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 I know that um, more contemporary ethnomusicologists are, are shifting away from that and trying to understand the more intrinsic nature of, of uh, the basic materials of music and music making there. Um, there are also so many things, uh, well, some other things that I've also dealt with in terms of paradigms of music, uh, that contrast between the East and the West, I have um, a duo concerto for Shakuhachi and Biwa and orchestra. And uh, the, the Shakuhachi and Biwa players, uh, they, they are trained to perform silence. Uh, the ma, it, it's not really a negative space. You know, it's, it's, it's as important as what goes between the spaces. The space is felt. Wow. And it's not metric. They make a sound and then they leave, feel an appropriate amount of time and then make another sound, right? And the first 10 minutes of my 20 minute piece, the performers, 
the soloists are sitting in front of the orchestra in their black formal kimonos and just being present virtuosically. You could really feel them. They were so good at it. You know? oh, wow. It was intense. And is there a pedagogy system for this? They well, it's a, it's it's a frame of mind, right? Just that that that's also important. And I was going to go to say, in contrast, in the second half of the piece, after the soloist started playing, the orchestra is silent for the the remainder of the piece. Hmm. And in that second half, um, I remember some of the hardest things I've ever had to coach was to tell the string sections hey, you're still here, please still listen. You know, they were, some of them were kind of checked out like they were done, you know, that they were no longer on the job. Like you could tell by their energy and their body position, they were kind of slack and, and, and the disengagement, right? Like when you can tell when your students aren't listening, right? They're, they're, they're checked out that, you know, because they weren't playing anymore, playing notes they they also weren't present and listening anymore and then you know i i believe that you could feel it when people are listening and it's a powerful thing when a room full of people listen together intensely absolutely and absolutely yeah and then when you have a whole orchestra do that it gets broadcast to the audience no so that was you know what i had tried to design as part of that piece, as a memorial piece for Toru Takemitsu, you know, being, being, feeling present, uh, and there was a kind of reverential space of memory in that. And, but it's, it's a different paradigm, right, of what you accept as, as music. So I, I think there are opportunities that both the West and the East can learn from each other, these these things about life and sound, and but so far, uh, because of the history of power and prestige, um, signaling that it, it, even in, in Asia, most of the music schools still uh, mainly teach Western classical values. There are places more and more where uh, local histories are taught alongside Western instruments, or um, they actually specialize in, in uh, the local uh, historical music. Um, but uh, I... <clears throat> I feel part of my mission is to advocate for the voices of um, the the disenfranchised as of yet, and also advocate for the fact that we we could all individually make our own um, space. Because I I know that my own personal performance practice might seem idiosyncratic or I use the word weird to some people. And, and I've also been asked by, by st young students 
if uh, how I feel if 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 people don't like what I do, you know. And I thought about it, and then I said, well, actually, the weirder you think what I do is, I think actually I represent more hope. Because I am so lucky, I can live from making only the music I want to make, you know. And th there is a space for this weird thing that I do. So if, if a young musician, I come into contact and, and questions what I'm doing, then, um, or thinks that it's weird, uh, that, then I, I hope that person will also realize that the fact that I could exist you know, as an example of someone who could live from doing this weird thing, then surely, you know, there's a space that their less weird thing could also exist, you know? Definitely. Yeah, and the, the main provocation is, like, I would rather live in a world where even this is possible, right? Absolutely. I mean, I will say, uh, without blowing smoke at all, uh, I am a big fan of your work uh, from the very first time I, I heard it in performance. And the concept of performativity, right, of praxis, of theatricality almost, yeah. it's, it's always inherent in your works. Um, and I want to get to a, a broader ontological question. Mm -hmm. But first, you use the megaphone in performance. I, I mean, I've seen... Uh, your concerto on a sufficient condition mm -hmm. uh, live before and it really is a, a mind-blowing experience and um, the idea of doing a duet with your childhood self and sort of breaching the the I guess binds of temporality and using it as your sort of artistic substrate mm -hmm. what is an instrument because you've described the megaphone as a prosthesis for your voice, and the voice is something that's intrinsic to your body, right? Isn't is a trumpet a prosthesis for the artistic spirit of a of a trumpet player? Is does it have the same sort of implication? What is an instrument, especially when things like architecture can also be used for sound design? Yeah, uh, one of the things I say is that instruments are not instruments; they're people. And I've um, been lucky to have m met some remarkable people in my life. Uh, Francis Mariuti, who developed a technique for playing the cello with two bows to be able to play all four strings at the same time and different pairs of three strings, which also allows her to have cross rhythms and Sultasto versus Sulpant on the other, and um, it it opens up the instrument in a whole different way. My friend uh, Philippe Brunet, the trumpet player who can play double pedals below the bass clef uh, and throat sing on the cello C at the same time as circular breathing on that pedal. Uh, whereas I remember having taken orchestration class in my undergrad and using the Adler book and, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> learning that the lowest note on the trumpet is the F sharp below middle C, right? Um, so I, I have hence learned also from like listening to, to 
my favorite rock and jazz artist too, that um, what individual people can do to reinvent what the possibilities on an instrument is, is quite remarkable, you know. So rather than thinking about like a recipe book of notes and a range or this is what, you know, um, engaging with remarkable people who don't approach their instrument or music making from a recipe book, but rather through their bodies and then their instruments as extensions of what they can imagine, right? And it starts with the imagination and what you feel. And uh, I feel a kinship with that and what, what I'm trying to do with my voice. It starts in my body, but then there's things that I could do with the megaphone, especially in collaboration with uh, interesting acoustic spaces that I, I can narrativize my movement in the space. I can direct my voice in different directions to activate different resonances. But um, um, besides that, and besides having also invented some techniques specific to the megaphone, I, I have a way of being, um, of activating resonant frequencies and shaping them in my mouth. And so if I could read a specific uh, a section, uh, uh, I was going to say moment in, in an architectural space, but it's a moment if, as I'm traversing it in, in time and, and space. And if I could read a space and let the resonant frequency blossom and shape in my mouth. And then as I traverse the space, there are different resonant frequencies. Then um, as I'm traversing the space with the megaphone and collaborating with the space to articulate its resonant frequencies and shaping it, then architecture too can be read as harmonic structure. Hmm. The in a weird way, the first quote that comes to my mind when you say that, it's, uh, I don't know how big or overtly little a fan of Parsifal you are, but there's a part in Act One yeah. where uh, Gournemans is taking Parsifal into uh, Montsavat, the temple, the grail, and he says, Zum Raum wird hier die Zeit. Here, uh, in this realm, time becomes space. Uh, that's... It, there's that interdisciplinary, um, I guess, artistic framework. It, it's so uniquely palpable in your music, um, even down to the little things. And like, I remember I was at the premiere of Zetsu, your violin concerto, with um, with it was Gabriela Diaz and mm -hmm. SOCMP. Yeah. And one thing that struck me uh, was the symmetry of your orchestration. Mm. You had two percussionists, mm -hmm. two basses, right? Two cellists, yeah. two woodwind players. And then the only asymmetry was the soloist and the conductor. Yes. Writing for specific people in such a way where you do get those sort of asymmetricalities from the ensemble. What's what's your mm -hmm. sense as to how how to teach that how to teach the relationship you build with these new musicians and um, maybe going beyond the Adler 
orchestration book in the classroom because you do have a long history of pedagogy and mentorship of composers. Um, what's what's your outlook on how to sort of bridge those gaps of what actually is possible, how to cultivate those relationships? Is that part of what you try to pass on? Yes, yes. Um, but let me talk about the orchestration in Zetsu first. The, the, hmm. There's a specific tuning to the piece that was derived from me going to a Target store in the Alameda when I was writing the piece. And then, no way. yeah, walking by these two uh, printers, and then they, there was this beautiful hum. So I documented it on the iPhone and I transcribed it, and that is the temperament for the metal pipes. My God. In the piece. And then so uh, the beginning, towards the beginning of the piece, when the violinist first comes in, there's a little quote from Tchaikovsky. Yeah, so, I was going right? to bring that up before yeah, when we were talking so, about your Hong Kong students yeah, quoting Yeah, so repertoire. of course it's a violin concerto, so I have to acknowledge that it's a violin concerto, but then it's smudged. And then what happens throughout the piece is that gradually the, uh, <laughs> the history of the violin concerto gets retuned to my esoteric tuning derived from a banal moment in my life. And um, there are also tactical things like, well, having it's a, it's a weird tuning, so that having the pipes there are also uh, practical and helps the gives a reference to the other instruments to tune to it. And because uh, the the piece relied so he heavily was about kind of retuning the 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 world the the history. The, you know, I, th I think equal temperament is one of the most uh, neo-colonizing uh, invisible grounds of, of music. You, you take it for granted. You know, this is an interval. This is, this is in tune, uh, essentially saying that other things are not. Other th you know, things uh, played on a gamelan, things played on gagaku instruments. Um, right? It becomes a reference point. Definitely. Right? So, so uh, retuning the history of Western classical music became kind of like a, uh, a means for me to uh, kind of, I guess, allegorically fight that. Now, um, to hear micro, uh, microtones, it's, um, it's, it's, microtones are most audible when there's a horizon against which you could could feel the beating mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and having like timbres helps helps articulate those beatings right? and that's part of uh the the calculus in having that instrumentation with a like pair and uh, uh, well, it also gave me an opportunity to play between the stereo fields, so the left and right. But uh, I think if uh, one of the main factors was to 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 clarify the microtone. I see. Yeah. Now the person's specific specificity in it was um, 
important too. Like one of the clarinet players is Matt Ingalls, who's uh, one of my closest friends in the Bay Area and in my performance life, in my improvising in the Bay Area. He's, he's, he and I have probably played the most. He's been my most trusted ally and partner in improvisations in the Bay Area. And uh, I, I, I know that he could circular breathe on the high A. Right? And uh, uh, that's an important pivot point in the piece to go from more um, muscular, visceral gestures to, to the ending where we, we have actually the recording that I made at the Target store um, be present along with the, the tuning. And uh, two clarinets, circular breathing, and gradually moving further and further apart so that you could hear the difference tone, a third tone going up. Um, it has to be there for a certain amount of time. So circular breathing and just giving space for them to do that for two minutes. It's hard, but I, I knew that they could do it too. We've done other pieces where uh, Matt and I do that. Uh, and I wanted to have that be a kind of pivot point to go into that that sound world um, later in the piece. Person specificity, hmm, um, I learned from my my favorite artist growing up, Jimi Hendrix. I'm a musician because of Jimi Hendrix. Gotta love Jimi Hendrix. I, Incredible. I. It was so powerful that, and so cool that I somehow had to also start playing electric guitar, right? And um, no, I, I say that all true loves are irrational. There's no rhyme or it was just so cool. Hey, I want to do something like that too. And people like John Coltrane, yeah. And uh, so in in uh, jazz and rock music, we take it for granted that that specific artist matters. Um, um, I'm also a fan of Radiohead, and I, I've gone to Radiohead concerts with uh, some close friends, and it, you know, if you're a fan of some artist, you pay a premium to go see them because it's important that it's that person. Definitely. Yeah, and uh, that unpacking that listening experience, I thought, well, it's not so different from when I pick up the phone and someone says my name and I recognize it immediately, it's my mom, but even more than that, I often I can tell what mood she's in just from the way she says my name, you know? That's really mm -hmm. complex, but I might also, po I might posit that that's a pretty common thing, you know, um, with, with all of us listening and, 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 uh, picking up the phone and hearing our loved one's voice, we could tell, you know, we are empathic beings and that's an important part of, of listening. And it's very sophisticated how that works. And I thought about how uh, most of my training, all of my training actually, did not help me unpack that. Hmm. You know, it foregrounded materials as, as, as decoupled from the body a one chord, look at these verticality, what are the, you know, we give it names and functions, uh, uh, whereas 
a lot of my favorite listening is there's this sound that Jimi Hendrix or Cecil Taylor was making, and it was important that it's my mom saying my name. It's that it, it, there's something really complex, but you know, many of us have have this shared experience and listening to our favorite artists like that, right? So, um, uh, my, part of my mission in classical music is is to transpose that into classical music, and and that's been what I've been trying to do in my person-specific concertos. You know, build a frame around around remarkable people that I want to honor, and also um, also it says that if you want to hear this music, you have to get these people in the way that fans of Lady Gaga, fans of Radiohead do, you know, they, yeah. there's lots of cover bands, but, yep. but, but the fans go see the, the original people, right? It also kind of opens up another question mm -hmm. beyond the individual person specific to the piece, yeah. uh, the system of pedagogy, the system of how we practice, how we learn, how we internalize the sounds we make has to change in order for other people to approach those pieces. Yeah. Do you think there is a sort of room because we're you know there are there are schools with new music performance degrees i mean yeah. all over europe i mean uh boston conservatory right has a, a a contemporary music program uh in in performance not just in composition or theory comp kind of thing is there this opening for our perceptions of how the instruments are on a broader scale to change or what sounds are natural to change Mm. Well, uh, classical music is a genre, and it is also a business, and uh, it's, it's so much of those conditions um, are facilitated by the fact that the history is closed. Right? It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a known quantity, and if you yeah somehow it's comforting to some people to to emblazon beethoven's name above the stage as i saw many many times at boston symphony there's like a, a golden frame of, of above the stage and it's the name beethoven at harvard uh, Payne hall there are lots of names of um, classical composers, and somehow in the middle of the stage, above above the stage, is Beethoven's name. You know, so it's it's as if the people have already decided what the most beautiful music must is, uh, without giving allowance for the future. What helps me get up in the morning is to believe that the most beautiful music is still yet to be to be made. Probably not by me, but that that there's still hope that the, it's still open, that there's still space for us to, for us living today, to keep doing what we do, rather than be be, be temple worshippers for something that's already happened. You know? Amen, amen. We have this entire scene in the U.S. Mm -hmm. 
drenched in this nostalgia is programming the the, the, the I guess Mount Olympus that we need to to reach the you know at administrators to be courageous enough to push boundaries to get other types of musics and listening experiences heard outside of just new music ensembles quote unquote well i I don't know i mean um it's it's important to be more diverse in representation but how many times does you know uh sarayaho have to be played so that we start thinking of her in the same breath as beethoven exactly it's this very special language it's a um you know it's very musical it's she's arguably the greatest living composer alive i think but um so uh, uh there's been a lot of talk about diversifying the program but that's only like one band-aid i think you know because in the schools in the architecture uh there's so much that still gets signaled about the 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 value the prestige value the superior uh, cultural value of western classical music uh vis-a-vis -vis all music you know i mean i was i had a lesson a, a couple of weeks ago um and my student at uc berkeley um said to me in passing oh i think bach invented jazz and what she was saying is that Oof. the way that you know like like for example like bebop you know, um, charlie parker weaves through harmonies and they're often you know two fives you know fifth relationships and it it it, it kind of spins around the you know the 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 linear aspects playing the changes kind of she plays the changes right and and Bach plays the changes too you know but then I said whoa, 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 whoa are you comfortable discounting dismissing the accomplishments of black artists right so there she didn't mean to say that and of course she was horrified when I pointed that out thankfully <laughs> but but you know something casually it got signaled she didn't mean to be offensive or something like that but but in her training there was so much reverence that you she mm -hmm. picked up latently from from yeah the history classes and how everybody talks about how amazing bach and beethoven or whatever you know is that it it, it becomes a kind of a, a relational game you know that we're saying that of course that music is important and beautiful too but it the way it becomes uh a relational game that that it's taken for granted that that's the greatest music of all time ever that could be i think it's more limiting to the project of human culture going forward than helping us definitely agree definitely agree and you mentioned Coltrane before. Coltrane's a hero of mine. I'm staring at a portrait of him that's hanging above my desk. Uh, and talk about, um, you, you know, the idea of reverence. And I, I realize the irony of that. Um, 
is there a place to revere people of the past or should we always be thinking present or future because there's that ritualistic mm-hmm. aspect of going to a concert everyone's dressed in black and white you've got the person in the col- the white collar leading the performance etc of course, we, we, we are inspired by, you know, the different things in our narrative. Um, my biggest hero is Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Coltrane's really important to me and so many artists. Um, and it's, it's quite reverential. What I'm talking about is when uh, uh, people in positions of power, like the institutions of higher learning that I'm also uh, uh, a member of, the institutions of performance, orchestras and opera, and and I guess critics and everybody who participates in the culture industry, that there has been historic, what's been historically problematic is that everybody in that, those spaces have worked together in concert to to message um, icons of greatness, which be- have become an ostensible cultural uh, glass ceiling to those of us who don't belong to the, those to that dominant culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, my my heroes, yeah, Hendrix and Coltrane. Um, when I talk to people uh, who revere the Western canon, but who don't listen to other kinds of music, right? Uh, I've even had teachers say, well, you know, the greatest accomplishment musically of mankind has been counterpoint. So Bach is the greatest composer of you know, everyone. And then uh, summarily dismissing uh, some of the music that been important to me, for example, right? So, of course, it's important to have our, our idols, our points of, you know, uh, reverence. Uh, um, I am often uh, stymied um, by, by colleagues who are not fans of a piece or artists or composers or something, you know? I, th- I think it is important to be wowed, uh, to be humbled by something in the arts. Mm-hmm. So, and it becomes a, a great point of inspiration to, to strive for something like that, right? Yeah. But when it becomes relativistic and if some things are closed off so that uh, those of us who don't belong to the dominant culture are, are, are priorly redacted, then it's not democratic. The first thing I did when I picked up a copy of my former colleague's Oxford history was look in the back for the name Takemitsu. Mm-hmm. It didn't, it's not even in the whole thing. So I did not buy it. Yeah. I mean, there are, in that fifth volume, there are a lot of uh, very striking omissions. Yeah, so that's that's an example of how power and certain things are signaled, and by omitting some things, you're also saying this is not as important, right? 
Yeah. When, yeah. What's the process like in 2020 or even when you were first getting started out of your PhD? What's the process in finding and asserting your own sense of identity and space in the academy where things are so, uh, like the deck is so stacked against that? Yeah, well, first thing is as a person of color, I had no choice but to try to um, exhibit excellence in the modes of assessment um, that are normative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do my counterpoint, get A's on my my theory homework, right? Uh, Get a PhD from Harvard, Uh, be vetted for my grants and fellowships and in and yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I feel like when we have our commencement at UC Berkeley, that I am not just representing myself, but my students. And at UC Berkeley, I'm proud of the fact that most of our music majors are Asian American. Mm-hmm. And uh, wearing my, my crimson regalia, I, uh, as you know, one of the few Asian American, the only Asian American uh, professor up there, right? Um, hopefully signals hope against the, the ex-nominative redaction in, in music that um, is, is still pervasive. So being present, presence, being there, Fighting for my space at the table. Uh, first, I, I knew I had to just try to be excellent in the ways that I knew I was going to be assessed, and I've done that. Uh, and, and then it's also been a, a growth journey for me too, because as I was going through my training, I I also became aware of the spaces I, I wanted to go to, that I needed to go towards in my own uh, art practice and my compositions, right? So it was not as if um, from the get-go, I, I knew I needed to do instrumentalized architecture with my uh, bespoke vocal practices, for example, that evolved. Uh, I started out writing, you know, uh, complicated, late modernist pieces with three different tempos and mm-hmm. uh, lots of uh, and all the pitches being you know, cycled in different ways and different permutations algorithmically and stuff, you know until I realized oh my god it, it sounds like the music I was really admiring at the time like uh, Ligeti and Burt Whistle you know uh, my heroes at the time and and also feeling uh, like wait a minute after you know all my training, they're only looking at music from Europe, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and and how can I participate? I didn't have any mentors. No one told me about Takemitsu until like way later. I didn't even dis- I had to discover him on my own in in uh, the middle of my masters. Really. And uh, like, wow, there's a composer who, yeah, <laughs> you know, and it was helpful to me that when I was uh, going through that, that initial early crisis in, in graduate school, when I was becoming aware of being neo-colonized, that um, 
I was becoming uh, I, I became aware of the the cinema of Wim Wenders, the great German director, and um, uh, Cambridge, where I was living at the time, um, Massachusetts. What's you know? There's a number of art house um, movie theaters, the Brattle mm-hmm. and the Harvard Film Archives, and uh, I, I got introduced to a lot of amazing cinema, and I got introduced to the work of Vim Vendors. He has these big Hollywood productions that are popular, but then he does he makes these like personal documentaries. They're like essays for himself. They're like homages to his his heroes like interesting like, you know uh, lisbon stories like an homage to fellini for example and lightning mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. water is like this this homage to nicholas ray tokyo ga is his homage to his biggest hero ozu the great japanese director mm, and then around yeah. that time i started kind of getting uh, got a little obsessed with vim vendor's works uh, i got a collection of uh, anthology of his writings and interviews and then I learned that for um, Vim Vendors also went through a, a similar kind of crisis of identity. He says growing up in the 50s in Germany, he felt neocolonized by America. He was, uh, uh, you know, there were American troops occupying Germany. He was listening to rock and roll, he was wearing jeans, and then he started, once he started making films, he thought, he realized that the history of, of cinemas dominated by Hollywood. And being a, a sensitive young artist, he thought, well, how can I do this, you know? And then he discovered the work of Ozu, who he calls is the only real master, whose own idiosyncratic technique and contributions stand outside of Hollywood and has been influential on its own. Uh, and it was, it was inspiring to me. It's like the right medicine at, at the right time, you know? I was going through, as a Japanese-American, going through a crisis about not being German <laughs> in music, right? And, and mm-hmm. yeah, whereas he is feeling a crisis about not being American, but then his great point of inspiration that, that said, hey, it doesn't matter, you go do your thing. And then there's also, there are people outside of that dominant culture who make great contributions, and, and Ozu. Uh, being Japanese, I think also helped make it feel, uh, I don't know, palpable, relatable. His story relatable to me because it's like the uh, direct converse, right, of my experience. So um, many times things outside of music have also helped me through my, my personal journey. Yeah, and... On the topic of Ozu, I mean, so much of his artistic style is that sense of like relatability. I mean, the first Ozu film I saw was uh, Early Spring, right? And it's really, it's a slice of life film, sort of like a slice of life manga or anime in the present day, or like um, Norwegian Wood by Murakami. Um, sense of the visceral, relatable, gr- not gritty per se, but like it's, it's, you it's palpable the the humanity is palpable and in a lot of instances from my experience in talking with people who sort of fetishize western canon um if i can be so blunt i think they kind of miss out on seeing the forest for the trees 
because the same way you mentioned a student talking about, you know, Bach inventing jazz or the pinnacle of Western music being counterpoint, it's reductive for everything that also came before because Bach didn't come up in a vacuum and none of us do in the same way that uh, post-war Japan absolutely had a hand in influencing Ozu's film as mm -hmm. all of Japanese cinema as a whole. Um, what aspects outside of, let's say, music, the arts, um, do you find contributing to your vacuum? Because you found inspiration in interesting places. I mean, we've talked about Zetsu, but also Talus, uh, you know, coming from the x-ray of a broken leg. What, what do you think are the formative day-to-day -day experiences for you as an artist? Um, my uncle, my, my father is one of six. And I have an uncle, one of the six. He's a painter. And um, my father and my brother and I uh, visited my father's um, mother on the occasion of her 102nd birthday. God bless. And at that party were, uh, well, his siblings were all present. And I saw my uncle Ken. His name is also Ken, again. And uh, he, um, my father is from the southern island of Kyushu and the southern part of Kyushu, a place called Kagoshima. Kagoshima, in terms of landscape, is famous for a volcano, uh, Sakurajima, um, Cherry Blossom Island which is no longer an island because of um, when one of the times it erupted in the 20th century, it connected um, to uh, the mainland of Kyushu. And um, my uncle painted Sakurajima, the mountain, the volcano. It's still an active volcano. Uh, uh, and made um, well. He gifted my brother and I portraits of uh, the the mountain, yeah. and the the two paintings are of uh, 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 of contrasting styles. He said, uh, "You know, my brother. It's he gave my brother a more quote unquote realistic, photorealistic kind of version." My brother's quite uh, down to earth. He's a business guy, right? Um, that makes sense. And then he uh, gifted me um, a version that that that's kind of wilder and freer and kind of like uh, you know uh, Van Gogh like with mm. bold brush strokes and uh, bold colors unblended and you know and um, when I was a kid, from uh, when I was four to seven, we lived in Switzerland, and my uncle had come to train in France around that time. So it was that time, around those years, that I, I 
I, I got to know my uncle best. We saw each other more during those years, and then we hadn't really seen each other since then. Right, so that's like more than 40 years. Well, about 40 years, I hadn't seen him. And then, um, so he said, oh, even as a kid, you would say the most outlandish things. And he, he remembered <laughs> <laughs> this kind of irreverence or you know. Sounds like so, my family. So, so, <laughs> so um, I might, yeah, uh, stipulate there is something maybe, I, I don't know, natural about an attitude that's necessary for creativity. And How so? A, a kind of, uh, uh, I, I might say, a kind of irreverence about look, the way to look at the world. You know, hmm. see it in your own way. And, and then there are, there's like the hard work and everything to, to cultivate that, that energy, or that, that spirit. Um, and I don't know. I mean, so when uh, I had the opportunity to write the, my, my uh, vocal concerto, around that time, I rediscovered these cassette tapes that you mentioned earlier that I made when I was six. And it turns out that I was singing multiphonics, vocalizing multiphonics. Now I think that when I heard overtone singing in my mid-twenties, I'm wowed by it and thought that, wow, I, I, it's amazing. Um, I, I want to do it. I think I could do it. I think at that moment, maybe I was subconsciously predisposed to it mm. from, from my childhood. I, I didn't know it. I didn't realize it at the time. You know, I think all of us have a kind of intrinsic self and, but maybe often we're not allowed to let it blossom, to become. I can definitely relate there. Right? Yeah. So that, that banal moment in my life was while I was composing, I needed to also go get, you know, uh, paper towels or whatever. And I went to the Target. So that's banal. But the sounds were transcendent. And I wanted to document the sublime. It's what I call the quotidian sublime. It's part of an attitude in, in life. Um, being an artist is an attitude and a lifestyle. So I don't, you don't all of a sudden turn on composing. You know, you're always an artist. So that, that, uh, that attitude informs what I eat. I'm a foodie, and how what it means to me, and how I see the effects of the changing light and the shadows in my my room, and I document that on Instagram. Or these are ways I practice, I guess. At the same time, as uh, it, it it's also evidence of a particular frame of mind engaging with life, and. Um, so uh, I, I, I think from the things I've read and seen and heard, eaten, experienced, I've, I've learned to try to be more sensitive about other things that I experience now and, and hopefully into the future, right? That there's richness, uh, phenomenological richness, almost like, yeah, definitely any time 
all around us, but most of the time we're not perceptive to it. We don't give it as much space, hmm. you know, to, we don't honor that because we think the sublime can only come from going to the Metropolitan uh, Museum and seeing a, you know, a Rembrandt or something, you know, whereas the effect of uh, sunlight um, at sunset coming at the precisely the right angle to hit a blossoming flower from behind the flower. So it's like a spotlight in nature. Right? Being is is mm -hmm. as beautiful as a Rembrandt to me. And it also required me to be there at that moment too. Yeah, the ephemerality of it. Yeah. It, it's what I call a secret meridian. Yeah. The, the confluence of the light being perf at that precise angle and then the flower also having blossomed at that right moment when the light catches it and me being there, right? You mentioned being a foodie. Yeah. I am too, so I can definitely relate. And when you're having like a multi-course meal, one thing that chefs, like real quality chefs, will uh, try to instill is a sense of like, long arch balance and individual courses might be more jaunted towards one direction or another in is there a translation to your compositional practice a sense of maybe not on the short scale or the microscopic scale in a work but how do you achieve balance in a longer work how, how does that factor in mm. does it yeah well uh roland bart in the Empire Signs, a short little manual where he talks about Japanese culture, says that the eating experience in Japan, a Japanese meal is non-linear, that all the little dishes come out at the same time and you choose, like in an open form, um, what to engage with, what to taste this, uh, all of it being centered around the bowl of rice that you always have in, in your hand too. So mm. you come back and then, so it's not as, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, whereas he consciouses it with French cooking, where it is one, one course at a time. Yeah. Yeah, you know. But I feel like I've learned, I mean, different lessons. For example, going to Momofuku Ko, right, and there's a prefix meal, and one of the, the dishes was a large tablespoon that's cold um, with, with a dollop a generous portion of frozen shaved foie gras with pine nuts and other things in it, right? And then putting it into my mouth, it's, it was at once like, wow, I've never experienced anything like this. It's amazing. But then at the same time, it's foie gras, it's fat. So it's, it's like a big hug, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it's comfort food, right? And then I, I learned, oh, wow, you, you, you can have that, that modernist feeling of this, this newness, this thing, at the same time as, you know, like home cooking, the feeling of home cooking, you know, at the same time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like a lullaby at the same time, you know. Um, making a trip, you know, they say that the, the, one of the standards for a three-star three star Michelin rated restaurant is that it's worth flying to that country just to have a meal, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. uh, I went, I was lucky enough, I was able to go to Noma, Noma 1.0, and I did that. And, and uh, it was 
mind-blowing and how I could contrast that in the spirit of ingenuity and, and risk-taking with local materials that, you know, that, that, that it's not, that they're finding some interesting materials and finding the right way to orchestrate it, right? And then deliver it to you, you know, a special thing. And I might contrast to like Alinea, which is like a magic show. Everything's perfect, perfect, yeah. perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. But at Noma, there was still an edge and there were some things that didn't, they knew, it felt like, oh, it's, it's not quite perfect yet but we're going to have you try it, you know, that, that there was a transparency that the, the, the kitchen was still open and it was, it was in, you know, they're still trying, they're still moving forward and taking risks. It's not like we found the greatest hits and this is all we're going to play. Right. Yeah. That was, and then you went like uh, Giro's, you know, this yeah, of course, it's like a 20 minute meal and like, boom, boom, boom. And then, um, it's it's about sourcing the 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 most special materials and doing just enough that it's a little bit more special, right? It's not mm-hmm. the techniques over, you know, uh, the history of like French cooking developed because there was a relative scarcity of fresh materials to compare to like Italian cooking, which is about trans like like Japanese cooking, collaborative with it's like plating the seasons right yeah, yeah. exactly you know, so so with with sushi too it's like finding the right moment to it's not just the freshest you know for depending on the, the kind of um mackerel for example or tuna uh you know waiting a certain amount of time brings out more more flavors and different flavors right hmm. yeah and also the you know, um, the rice is the center of sushi. It's not the fish. Most places in the United States I've went to, I've been to in, su- in having sushi, the rice is a delivery mechanism for the protein, you know? As opposed to vice versa. Yeah, or it's yeah. Synergy. It's often too clumpy and wet and cold. It's supposed to be a body temperature. And there is this beautiful balance between the individual kernels, rice being independent while also belonging together. And that, that, that um, body politic is shaped in Jiro's hand. That's the part he does himself. He doesn't let his son or his assistants do that. They cut the fish, they put the seaweed around the rice, but each rice, um, uh, for sushi, each piece of sushi is is formed in his hand, you know, and that the tempera the the shrimp was a revelation because in most places in the United States the shrimp is pre cooked and it's it's cold and it's sitting there in the you know in the counter right. Uh, he he um, sourced a special kind of shrimp. It's like a larger prawn. It's more flavorful. It's meatier. And it's alive until right before he serves it to you. So he, he quickly, you know, boils it right in front of you, gives it to you. And so for, for the shrimp, that was a solution in terms of temporality. For some of the other fish, it's about having it age a few days or, you know. Um, so mm. there are lots of lessons about respecting material, what, what is, what's, you know, finding 
just the appropriate way to orchestrate it. I feel like some of the sounds that I'm advocating for in terms of person specificity, right? Especially like my own vocal sounds. Many people ask, well, why don't you use, uh, you know, electronics with your voice? Or do you ever use a max patch? I used to early on, but then I recognized that with the presence of technology, people started asking about what my patch did rather than what I'm doing with my body. And I felt like my the he heavy lifting was going on with my body, right? So, mm -hmm. so I, with the sounds in my composition process, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to source the most transcendent sashimi and plate it just right, you know, rather than cover it up. No, if a sound that emanates from the body is complex enough, is, is fulfilling enough, is special enough, then let's not get in the way of it, is what I learned from Jiro, you know? And it's adaptable too. The one thing yeah. that always struck me with Jiro mm -hmm. is he's an elderly man, but his hands look 18. And one thing I was reading about was that the yeast in the rice in really top quality, well-made sushi rice in Japan, uh, they were using that in some skin creams for anti-aging creams for, for women in Japan. Oh, wow. The, the same yeast that Jiro uses in his sushi oh. as a byproduct, making it so so special in terms of how it's, how, it, how exactly, as you mentioned, the synergistic relationship, but also this cross... Uh, discipline mm. that it's also applicable and I think the same thing applies in a weird way to good composition mm. there's this sort of um, using old sounds old instruments old techniques and then finding new ways of applying them um, because I mean let's be honest you know you, you spoke about you know the Hong Kong underground scene hacking instruments making new instruments using what they have available uh, but every time someone picks up a violin, it's also this implicit dialogue, right, with the history of the instrument and the implications of using instruments out of the Western canon and, and all of the byproducts that come along with that. Uh, but using it in a new space, using it in a new paradigm, I think it, the Jiro comparison is absolutely on point. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, for, for an old guy, he looks pretty good. Yeah. Right, uh, but but uh, you know um, maybe that is that's another thing about maybe that's um, showcasing another value of doing what you love. Yeah, what is what is existence? What is our purpose? And is it work if we're enjoying every minute of it, or at least enjoying it enough for it to not to feel like? Right, labor. right. I feel like a lot of um, our, you know, American uh, culture is about vocation, vocation and achievement yeah, based and productivity. So that as as cost of college keeps skyrocketing, this greater and greater pressure to align a major with. Uh, potential vocational output, right? And then so people who are, are computer science and engineers, or it, it, lo it's, it looks smoother, right? It articulates smoother into mm -hmm. a vocation, whereas the humanities are compromised in that equation, you know? Yeah, and um, 
And it, it is this decoupling between what we do and who we are. So uh, my friend, some of my friends, you know, as talented as they are as being lawyers or doctors or something or whatever, often they they come home and then they they're able to check out. You know, they they have their job, but it's it's more distinct, like who they are. It's not you know. Yeah. And uh, what I feel like I'm, I'm really lucky about is that I've have music in my life that I'm passionate about and art and informs what I how I live every moment of my life that there is no checking in checking out you know clocking in it's it's um it's just how I live my life sometimes keeps you up at night too and you wish you could check out well I yeah I have I, I hardly sleep anyway really I have apnea I can relate. I have a deviated septum, uh, so sleeping is hard too. Yeah. You have a CPAP, right? Uh, because I've seen you use it in performance. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I I performed with it out of kind of it's my way of getting back to at it because it, it, the air pressure necessary for it, the way it was calibrated, um, it kind of ramps up over the course of the evening, and it used to be huh. it used to be so strong that it used to wake me up. I guess I, I could have had it um, re-attenuated or something, but but at that point I, I had been dealing with it for long enough that it was frustrating that I, I tried to find some other solutions. What do you do? What's your process? If you're, you said you don't sleep a lot. Do you stay active? Do you stay engaged? Do you just ideate? Is that part of your process? Uh, well, I, I read a lot. And... Uh, I guess I do. Well, I think about things. Yes. Um, it's also important, I think, to do things in the creative narrative that's, that feel that's on, on the outset seems useless. Mm -hmm. you, I know exactly yeah, what you're talking about. Because you never know what you can learn from and where, where inspiration, other things, you know. So by engaging in a lifestyle where I learn things or meet people or, you know, that, the, and um, it's in those ways that my world expands. And then out of that are opportunities to uh, learn something that could be exciting. Not every, every time, but that, that's, you know. So I've incorporated that into the, you know, my lifestyle when you mentioned before the the act of listening and being present right yeah there's that sort of meditative presence is there a is there some sort of meditative or even spiritual practice in your life is that a factor at all for you uh um my vocal practice aligns with mindfulness and um thinking about my breath uh, especially since I have trouble sleeping and thinking about withholding my breath, exhalations, inhalations, and, and kind of feeling through that in my body and also thinking to what my body will do next, right? That's, that's composition. 
how does how does the improvisatory act change for you compared to something that's notated or is it part of the same action do you think or part of the same I guess, th thought experiment that goes into it there are it's a different feeling of time my vocal concerto engages with both it's a telescoping from an archive of the past that tape recording of my voice when i was six to orchestral music which are revivifications of uh, compositional intentions written in the past that's notated to the cadenza right? which mm -hmm. i hope is palpable that there are things i'm doing there although it's at once a recap and a development of the sounds from before that the way i'm presenting it i hope it's palpable that yes this is something that will never come back exactly and we're sharing this moment together right it's, it's a different energy of time there are different um affordances but so it, it also communicates to different um demographics of collaborators uh like the conservatory trained orchestra um it it it's you know you as an american composer i get two rehearsals and a dress so my interaction with the orchestra needs to be professional quote unquote and and fluid mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right efficiency efficient yeah whereas um i also collaborate with people who can't read music and so uh, the score becomes my interactions, my coachings or rehearsals or ways that I can listen and then kind of provoke and transform the, sh the shape of the piece while I also perform with them. That's a score you know, as mm -hmm. well. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's kind of like a different part of the brain too, even though it's the same body, you know. Um, and, um, but... It's, uh, let's see, well, when I compose, I do embodied tests on the instruments that I'm writing for. Yeah, it's a space of babbling. I have memories from before I could speak, but I, I remember understanding language before I could articulate it. Really? And, and so I, I remember as a baby, I was babbling as a baby, right? The linguist Roman Jakobson says that's, that's how babies rehearse their instrument to speak. But so the naturalist Sir Richard Attenborough says that um, the human vocal mechanism is capable of many more sounds than are necessary for, for language. And that's why he says that's, that's proof that there was music before language. What happens when we become fluent in our languages is that we so uh, ossify that it gets harder to do the unnecessary sounds. Yeah, it's a triage of what we practice, yeah. right? So that's also necessary. Fluency, virtuosity depends on that. But in my creative practice, I want to go back to the babbling moment and, and expand that because that's the space of open freeness where everything's still possible. More things are still possible. So I babble on the trumpet, cello, and my, my, my voice to try to discover sounds, things that feel, um, 
feel right, that sound right, you know, for me. And then I, I rationalize it into like a score orchestration, translated into frequencies and approximations of microtones and, you know, these kind of things, and voice leading, things like that. Yeah, you know, but, but it, 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 I, I try to go to that, that place in the body first. So mm -hmm. did that answer your question? Yes, okay. very much yeah. so. And I, I want to jump off from there because obviously there is an intrinsic uh, writing for specific people, writing for yourselves, knowing what your body is capable of. Would you ever feel comfortable performing someone else's work written specifically for you? But um, overall, I feel like it's more my mission to help them unlock their own potential as music makers too, than to be a vehicle to perform other people's music. Mm -hmm. Like like Hendrix and Coltrane, you know? Yeah, I mean, they also played covers, and yeah, sometimes I also perform other people's music too. But... Um, um, but then you get things like Ascension, Love Supreme. Interstellar Space. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's, just that's radical just, departures. That's, that's, yeah. Right. Um, and that's where, yeah, it's, it's actually the late work that I find most inspiring. Same here. Same here. Yeah. What is the way you're going to spend the rest of your day? What is going to keep you driven is there maybe a glass of whiskey at the end of your day after a long day at work? No. Um, in Right now, I'm in Puerto Rico. And then oh my I'm, God. I'm going to go for a swim in the ocean. And then I'm going to come back, and then I have a faculty meeting. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. Very, very different. <laughs> yeah. Ken, thank yeah. you so much. This was a pleasure. Yeah, great talking Thank to you. Let's talk more. Yeah. Yes, Hopefully, please. Hopefully yes, uh, we please. get past this pandemic stuff and then uh, let's go eat something.
Each work of art, each artist, each person is another brick laid upon the choices, voices, and experiences of the past. Join me next week as we continue our journey to uncover what's not there.